Pain Marketing Agency, co-founder with Pro Football Hall of Famer, uh, Warren Moon, executive producer, the main judge of Entrepreneur's Elevator Pitch. David provides constructive insight for thousands of businesses each year to help them focus on their company growth. And there's a whole bunch of other great stuff, which I'm sure you can Google. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, David Meltzer. How are you, buddy? Not talking about efficient. I love, I love the bio. Why get into it? People, there's something called Google. There's plenty of past things I've done, but let's talk about the future. Let's talk about empowering people to be happy in the future, to make money, help people and have fun. I, I like that. I think it definitely is at a point in time where um, with a Google machine, you can pretty much get anything. And in terms of time and efficiency, uh, you don't need to copy paste what I'm sure you've already said a million times before. So I won't ask any of those things. But nice. I will start here. I saw on the website you um, you had a uh, a goal to empower over a billion people to be happy. So, uh, at what age did you figure this out, and how much percentage wise are you on a mission to so far try and hit that over a billion? How are you currently tracking, my friend? How are you tracking? Yeah. So you know this is a great story because I'm walking on the beach about two and a half years ago, and I am. am a little bit emotional. My 12, at that time, I think 13 year old daughter, 12 and a half, one of her friends committed suicide. And it, it threw me for a huge loop because, like, I've always been a person about gratitude and forgiveness and accountability and inspiration, which I have a definition of happiness, enjoying the consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential. So it's always been around me for 15 years that I've been, you know, over 20 years training, but 15 years on my own spiritual, you know, enlightenment and journey. And it hit me like a ton of bricks because I could not figure out, like, when I did research, why so many 12, 10, 8-year-olds are killing themselves, right? I get, I get puberty. I get drug abuse. I get depression and, and all the biochemical things, bipolar behavior. Like I, I get all that, right? You know, I, I get PTSD and, and how that causes, you know, anxiety and depression, but it was beyond me. And then I started looking at all the other people that were killing themselves. And I realized that happiness was the cure to this epidemic of depression, anxiety, separateness that we're all going through. And they blame technology and they blame the opiates and they blame whatever PSTSD. And the, the truth is, is that we're not sharing enough of the most powerful virus, which is happiness, a virus that's spread simply by witnessing it. It strengthens you mentally, spiritually, emotionally, even financially, it'll actually strengthen your immune system. So I'm walking there on the beach and I'm crying. I still get choked up thinking about uh, th this epidemic. And it, it literally came through me. I get chills when I was walking. I'm like, oh, that's what you, your life you're here for. You know how to be happy. You were born with the happy gene. You've accelerated. You, you were happy through growing up with nothing. You were happy through getting your butt kicked on a football field in college when you should have been there. You were happy through uh, losing over $100 million. You, you know how to be happy. And I literally went on this thing and I said, how would I make the whole world happy? You know, humble business entrepreneur, you know, TV shows, movies, coaching, like a normal speaker, author. You've, you've read that bio a million times of a million guys, nothing unique there. How was I going to do it? And I'm a math person. And so I said, okay, I'm going to create a collective consciousness of happiness, which would take about one eighth of the earth. 
one eighth of the earth would be over a billion people. And because one particle of light overcomes a million particles of darkness, if I could somehow impact over a billion people to be happy, I could change the other seven billion as well. So this was this was the math of Dave Meltzer. So then I said this, all right, how am I gonna get to a billion? And this is where it got, I challenged myself, can I find a thousand people in my lifetime that I can teach my values and five daily practices to? And it might be seven by the time the, you know, my own lessons are learned and, and how I evolve. But right now it's four values and five daily practices. Can I teach a thousand people to teach a thousand people? to teach a thousand mm. people because a thousand times a thousand is a million, a million times a thousand is a billion. And resoundingly, I was confident, clear, balanced, and focused that without a doubt with my platform, my podcast, The Playbook, my TV show, Elevator Pitch, I got a new TV show, Two Minute Drill on Bloomberg. I speak around the world. I wrote four books. I have free trainings every Friday for everybody. I, you know, all the accessibility of, of what you call an active, I hate the word busy, so I call it an active lifestyle. Uh, I could do this. And so then the hardest part was now, how do you tell people, how do you have the cojones to tell people with a serious face Hey, my name's Dave Meltzer, and my mission in life is to empower over a billion people. Because when I told my family, they wanted to commit me and were fearful that I was going to take my own life, that I thought I was Jesus Christ or Tony Robbins all of a sudden, that I could impact over a billion people and change the world. And here's the cool thing. I stuck to it because one thing in my life, especially if you watch me play football when I was young, people laughed at me, scoffed at me, and made fun of me. And then eventually they applauded me and they did the same thing with my speaking and my book writing and my TV shows and my podcasts. They laugh, they scoff, they make fun, then they applaud. And that's exactly what started happening with this mission of mine. I stood in stages pre-COVID and said, my name's Dave Meltzer. My mission in life is to empower over a billion people to be happy. How many of you people out there think I can do it? And nobody would raise their hand. And then I explain how. I teach them the values. I teach them the practices. And at the end, I say, my name's Dave Meltzer. I'm on a mission to empower over a billion people. Who here wants to be one of my 1,000? And everybody raised their hand. That's something powerful. That's how I'm going to get there. And I, I know that I've already, I planted seeds under trees that I'll never sit under. I know I've already effectuated a thousand of the people. I haven't traced or tracked or could I, how many of the thousand have empowered another thousand, but I guarantee in my lifetime, it's going to work. Well, it's a, the it's an extremely eloquent answer there, mate, because what I was trying to figure out is the math of where you're going down the content path for scale or where you go in empowerment of others and then the way you're thinking about it in terms of the butterfly effect of that third layer down of the thousand by thousand, then it makes sense. So uh, you answered that perfectly, mate, because I... Uh, New Zealand is only, we've only got 5 million people there. There's obviously uh, billions around the world. Um, that sort of the butterfly effect of... Um, the multiplier of positivity is something that is interesting and clearly there's a framework with, which you sort of go through. So would it be fair to say you are maybe 10% on your journey after three years maybe? Like maybe maybe sprinkles of about 10%? Yeah, I would say, you know, for sure. If, if I know I've hit at least 1,000 people who are willing, at least 1,000 people who are willing to empower 1,000, 
you know, you, you have to figure the trickle down. I, I probably have five or 10,000 people that have said they want to be one of the 1,000. I probably have a thousand people because of, I do private coaching. I do group coaching. I have, you know, certain things where I can actually quantify people who are actually learning what I'm teaching that are integrating with me on Instagram and LinkedIn and regurgitating the correct values and practices. Uh, they sometimes answer questions better than I could. I was like, I could have said that better myself. So I would say 10, 10% is fair, but I'm going to live a long time too. So minimum of 111 years. I was born on January 11th at 111. I used to say, this is a great story. I used to say I'm going to die at 111 at 111 and diane cannon who's a famous actress she's in her 80s now but she was married to carrie grant and she shares my laker seats on the court with me and i told her that i was going to live to 111 die on january 11th at 111 like i was born and she said literally tears in her eyes like oh my gosh that's terrible i said why you don't want me to live that long she goes no you're limiting yourself you're the guy that always talks about not limiting and i'm like she goes, what if they have science that makes people live to a thousand and you spend the next 60 years telling people and manifesting you're going to die at 111? You've cut off 889 years, David. Stop limiting yourself. This was a valuable lesson because I started looking at how many other things am I not thinking big enough? Am I not asking big enough? Have I limited myself by man-made constructs that are just illusions like living to 111, I never in my mind thought, yeah, science could change the way we live and I could be cursing myself out of 889 extra years. Well, you spill yourself into existence because your headspace goes that way. Um, to impact a billion, you need that second, the butterfly effect of that third layer to, the, to um, empower others. How are you educating humans to empower themselves to then be so empowered that they then empower others because doing it for yourself is one thing that that flow on effect to pay it forward it needs to be pretty strategic how's your headspace around empowering those to empower others you know i was blessed my mom made me study history and the reason that she made me study history is because it's the only way you learn human nature because human nature never changes and from the beginning of time from sanskrit where we have the 12 magic rules of Sanskrit to the Old Testament, the New Testament, to Joseph Smith and Buddha and Muhammad. One thing is true. Human beings are empowered by two things, stories and the lessons contained there within. And so what my mastery, what my practice for me as an empowerment person to empower three layers down for the butterfly effect is that I have to continue to master the ability to tell stories and teach lessons because every lesson I ever teach will be forgotten, but I need to make sure it's accessible in the way that the human body, mind and soul and human nature accesses the stories and the lessons is through those stories. And so mm. the greater impact the stories will have, the greater ability others will be able to what? Tell the stories the same way they have in the Bible, the same way they do on Netflix. We're going to tell stories that teach these lessons. Mm, just in a, in, a, in a modern version for it as well the amplification of technology in the last 10 years to be able to timestamp and record forever for your children's children's children to be able to see is going to be mind-blowing and it's something that i was very aware of as soon as um, in a previous life so i was a professional snowboarder traveled the world did all that stuff and then social media came along and i i said to my wife and a bunch of friends i was like we are so lucky that that digital didn't cell phones didn't exist when we were doing what we we're doing because we would be stuffed the interesting part to that as well, as you fast forward 40 different years, every single prime minister, president, 
governor person of power is going to have digital dirt on them from from today and in a weird way i hope in four decades from now that it becomes an equalizer that everyone realizes that everyone isn't actually perfect and you can't have that perfect mirage for it so in some ways i'm really um you know if everyone's got dirt then it's all flat like whatever that's interesting um i wanted to jump to on your Twitter, you've always got some, you know, you got some good banter on there. You chuck some, chuck some quality out there. I'm messing with a bit of that. You said one that she said, the best life that we can live is when we are honest about ourselves with ourselves. And it's this uncomfortable mirror that you have to put against yourself to actually ask yourself the tough questions. What I was wondering is in your experience, you know, you're a, you know, I'm, I'm probably a young Simba to where, where you're at, but for all the people, people that you've seen in your world and your life, what percentage of those that you met a truly have that moment of true honesty with themselves. Wow. Well, first of all, I think that 100% of us are not honest with ourselves all the time. Uh, I hope that people are on a practice of looking within themselves to find what exists outside or what can be projected outside or what we can materialize outside of ourselves. So I think very few of us, um, a very, very low percentage, 0.001% actually are introspective enough and honest enough with ourselves it's sick i'm 52 years old and i will tell you that i have not been honest with myself uh, i still am not honest with myself we were talking earlier about how we hope in 40 or 50 years that the exposure and awareness that we're all hypocrites will actually allow us to connect closer to each other knowing that we're human and you know i talk about forgiveness all the time for this very reason uh, because forgiveness, I used to say, brings us peace and brings us together. But it also, believe it or not, is the only thing that I found, the only value that I found that brings certainty. And it was a very large leap in, in, in years of studying to figure out, especially with the Course in Miracles, how forgiveness brings certainty. Because what brings certainty, and I always joke around, but if anyone out there knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, please call me. I can make billions of dollars. I'll give it all to charity. But please, if you know, so, you know, people talk about uncertain times. I'm like, poo-poo on that. It's just accelerated change. Let's figure out what we have control of and take advantage of the great opportunity that exists with great change. But moreover, forgiveness, if we can practice or learn to forgive the unforgivable, our future is certain. That, that's the only certainty that I find. And it's a very deep thought. Um, and because of that, though, forgiveness as a practice allows us to handle what hurts the most, which is that we're inadequate because of what we're interfering with. Our inadequacy is because we interfere and create corrosion to the fact of what we walk with, the greatest source of power, the greatest source of light, love, and lessons. And we are so afraid to know what we actually are capable of. Think about it. How We know scientifically that our minds are capable of like 900% more than it does. And that's a, a minimum, right? We know by circumstances when adrenaline is pumping that our bodies, like guys like David Goggins proves it all the time, right? You know, I love when he said, when I'm ready to quit, I know I'm 40% of the way there, right? When I, when I just have nothing left, I'm only, we, right? And beyond the fact that our mind, our body, our soul, is so capable because of what we're connected to. You know, I used to look at mountains and thought I was a great hero because I could overcome these great challenges in my life. And then I became, as I looked introspectively through forgiveness and the hypocrisy in which I lived and the limitations which I gave myself and the fear in which, you know, relegated that limitation. For me, 
I started looking at, you know, why are you so worried about the mountain in front of you? Because you're walking with the source of the mountain. What walks with you and through you and inside of you made that mountain. There's a great story about, you know, scientists finally can make man and they call God down and they say, God, we don't need you anymore. We can make our own man. He said, really, you can make a man out of what? He said, anything you want, we can make a man. We know how to scientifically do it. We don't need you anymore. God said, terrific. We'll have a contest and we'll take a handful of dirt. Whoever makes the best man will exist and, and, and take control and show who has power. Scientists said, not a problem. They reached down and grabbed a handful of dirt and God said, nah, 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 nah. Use your own dirt. Mm. That's what gives me the power. To think deep enough and understand what truly walks with me allows me to forgive myself for the lessons that I've learned. You are deceptively deep, my friend, for someone that lives in a world of, you know, media and entertainment, you know, that whole sort of crazy world. It's not me that you, uh, that has a depth for thinking of what's inside in terms of how that converse outside because usually there's a tension of of solvers um or in, internal expectations potentially against what is expected of you externally as well but you touched on something there which i just want to maybe jump into talking about um you know like the goggins thing and the mindset and the headspace and and um you know i, I used to be a professional athlete was i played basketball for new zealand soccer for new zealand and became a professional snowboarder um now there's a something similar that i've seen between a but it, it's like a a different trigger that that happens or that i've seen where their headspace can go to another level of um focus and persistence and resilience and just that whole that you know you, you haven't actually hit bottom yet you don't actually know what it's because you haven't been to that sort of other side for those that have let's say stayed in the safe zone and not actually even felt that 40 percent of pain but then know that they're 900 percent more how do you try and change someone's mindset that has never been to the bottom to actually get to the top? How do you actually even make them realize what they're truly capable of? Because I think unlocking that in in leadership and um, in relationships and people, it, it's an extremely powerful thing. And there's only been a couple of types of people that I've seen that have that switch or that zone or whatever. And I'm just intrigued because, you know, you've obviously seen high performance, you've seen sport, and then now you've got the depth of relationships and stuff as well. So how do you sort of unpack that in, in your head? By three concentric circles that really illustrates how this all works. And so what I try to explain to people, regardless of what your quantum nature is, obviously you have a great quantum memory in athletics, you know, to be that successful in multiple sports and be that competitive, you were born into and have uh, a higher quantum memory or a potential uh, in that area. So within the context, everyone works with three zones. One, a comfort zone. So in certain areas of your life, you know, for athletics, for example, your comfort zone is very big. You know, a lot of people, you know, jump on a snowboard and their comfort zone, you see them day one is like this. I'm sure if I had some video of you uh, back then, your comfort zone is very large. So then outside of the comfort zone, even though you're that awesome, right, a professional, you still have a learning zone. You're trying tricks and, and you know, where one guy's just trying to stay up on the, on the lift, you're trying to do a triple flip instead of a double flip. That's your learning zone. 
Then outside of the learning zone exists the anxiety zone. And this is where awareness is so key because guys like Goggins, as you say, are very, and Wim Hop is another guy that I love that knows his anxiety zone, that they're constantly putting pressure on the learning zone to expand. And they know when they go too far into the anxiety zone, because we know we go too far in the anxiety zone when it starts shrinking. As long as we're expanding, we can stay right on that edge of learning and anxiety, right? It's good. But this is how people have nervous breakdowns. They push themselves so hard that the anxiety zone shrinks down pretty soon. Their comfort zone becomes the size of, you know, a speckle where they can't even get out of bed. Meanwhile, five years ago, they were running a multi-billion dollar corporation, multitasking, family, you know, all trips and everything. How does it happen? This person is just sitting in bed and can't even wake up, right? And this happens all the time. So what I try to get people to do is understand within the context of whatever activity it is, because we have different potentials and different superpowers and different weaknesses placed in different places, is to use the construct of where does my comfort zone lie? Because we want to get out of the comfort zone. Where is this learning zone lie? What are the activities to keep me in the learning zone? And how far out on the anxiety zone can I go until I feel the inward pressure? Because what eventually happens if you use this strategy, no matter where you're at, the very beginning or in a highly actualizing person like yourself, no matter who you are, your size of your learning zone becomes your comfort zone. What used to be your anxiety zone becomes your learning zone and you have a whole nother thing. And we see it all the time as we keep evolving in situational knowledge and experience and lessons we learned. It's like, wow, how can I handle that much? Because I'm consistently expanding, growing and using the three concentric circles to give myself a diagram to truly have a map to know that I'm pushing myself hard enough, but not too hard. So if the three concentric circles are going outside, which makes sense of the comfort, the learning, and the anxiety on the outside, isn't there a fourth circle, which is the pressure of the tension that pushes back between age with where your headspace is as well, with what your your fears may be? Because I'm imagining, you know, when you're in your early teens and 20s, you don't give a shit. You're like, stuff this, I'm doing me, and you're just go, 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 expand, and then you have an injury, and then you blow your ACL, and then you don't snowboard as much, and then you you meet wifey and then you get a bit older and then you stop, you know what I mean? Like how does, how do you, is there a, what's the fourth that, that you have to balance that? Cause obviously at different stages in your life, that feels like there's a fourth other little thing. And maybe that's yourself or your body. Maybe it's a physical thing. It's, um, ego-based, it's ego-based consciousness, right? So uh, hmm. what the ego-based consciousness has two components. Now remember age may, is not necessarily uh, indi- uh, indicative in athletics, it is. But for example, if you take a young person and tell them to stand on a stage with 70,000 people and perform, they're going to be way more terrified than I will be at 52 years old. But if you ask me to go off a ramp, you know, <laughs> a 100 foot ramp, I'm freaking out. So, you know, age isn't it. It's ego-based consciousness. It's all fear-based is that, that extra uh, energetic mm-hmm. layer that you're talking about because the ego has two components. Number one, it has the you know, normal Freudian primal fears, flight, fee, you know, fight, food, uh, flee, or the other F word. Yeah, the other F word. And then secondary fears are the ones that I work every day in the practice of ending fear. Uh, and the practice of ending fear allows me to reduce the constrictive nature 
that you're talking about, that fourth layer that has consistent pressure to squeeze it back down, that we're not mm -hmm. going to be able to grow and learn. And the ego-based consciousness has a secondary, and it can, for me, it, it includes the need to be right, the need to be offended, the need to be separate, the need to be inferior, the need to be superior, the need to be angry, frustrated, anxious, guilty, the need to be resentful. And so once I identify the needs of the ego, then I can be a ferocious Buddha in the counterintuitive blend of one. Most people, when they're in ego-based consciousness, they try to resist it, to go over it, to go under it, to oversell it, back-end sell it, lie, cheat, manipulate, especially to ourselves. The key to get through it is simply to stop. Don't resist. Don't run away. Don't go over, under, around. Just stop. And then I call it dropping down to your highest frequency, you know, learning to breathe through your nose, out through your mouth, to go ahead and get to center, to neutral. Mm. You know, I see so many people living Camus, the myth of Sisyphus. They literally live their entire lives pushing a boulder up to the top of the hill. And every morning it's at the bottom of the hill again. If you can learn to stop, drop, and roll, spend minutes and moments in ego-based consciousness, you can live a life of plateauing and growing. In other words, right, those zones keep growing plateau and grow. You don't have to start over, but the key is to be a ferocious Buddha. Know this, when you're in ego-based consciousness, you're on fire. Your mind is on fire. Your body's on fire. Your soul is on fire. What do you do when you're on fire? Stop, drop, and roll in the right direction. Right. You've just got this whole shit locked down, haven't you? You just got like got, got, all it, got all the shit. Jeez. I got to help people, man. <laughs> I get, I get <laughs> I the do you feel pressure? You're only ten percent successful. You've done all this. You got to, only another sixty years or hundred years. You got to, you got to drink it up. I wanted, to, okay, I wanted to um, jump to. So you were young twenties, stacked a shit ton of paper, cracked it. Life's good, gravy. Had everything sort of popping. The the ego that you balanced, um, that you fought against yourself in your twenties. How how has that differed going from your twenties, thirties, forties, and now going into your fifties? How is that own battle? Because the external shit's always, you know, you're going to be the same. Well, I, I asked because a, a good friend of mine, he's been married now for thirty years. He's fifty four years old, got married at 20, 24. and I asked him, does his wife think he's changed as a human? And he and she he said hundred percent. She thinks that he's now got she's married to guy number three now. He's had three lives. He said you know. And I was just interested for yourself when you look at um talking about you know ego and self awareness and and all the rest of it. How has that journey been for yourself when you put that uncomfortable mirror in front of yourselves to be able to be honest with yourself to yourself? Yeah, so I've gone through three lives. Married twenty three years <laughs> to a girl that I met in the fourth grade who hated me. Uh, and so she's known me a little bit longer. Um, so for me, uh, you know, humility is one of the constructs in which I've evolved. Uh, I lived in a, three worlds in my life so far, and they're, I think, illustrative of who I am. When I met my wife uh, at nine years old, uh, I lived in the world of not enough. I just wanted to make money to buy my mom a house and a car. I had a single mom, six kids. She worked two jobs, second grade teacher, packed my dinner, either peanut butter and jelly or a bologna with mustard on Wonder Bread in a paper bag, and then worked a second job with all of us in a station wagon studying together, five boys and one girl, to fill turnstiles up at the 7-Elevens and convenience stores with greeting cards. I lived in a world where I was a victim. Everything happened to me. Why couldn't I have this? Why me? And I was angry. 
and I lied to myself all the time. I hated my father because my father was a liar, a cheater, a manipulator, a back-end seller, you know, and, and, and I hated him mostly because he left. And then- He wasn't present, you know, right? Yeah. It, so that, then I moved on and I became a millionaire right out of law school. And man, everything reaffirmed my dream that money would buy love and happiness because I bought a house and a car for my mom. She seemed to really adore me more of the six kids. And, you know, I ended up making more money and people just kept telling me, yes, 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 you're Midas. Yes, yes. And I lived in this world that I thought was a philanthropic world. I thought I thought it was an abundant world where I had enough to give to other people. But the problem with my giving is I believe the more that I gave, the more I would receive. And what happened was giving became a negotiation for me. It became a trade. I didn't understand that I wasn't living as a victim in the world of to me. I moved to a world of for me. So what happens? I wasn't happy. I buy things I didn't need. I wasn't happy. I buy different things. I wasn't happy. I buy things to impress people. Even worse, I wasn't happy. I buy things to impress people I didn't even like like millions and everything was a trade or a negotiation in my life. And that was when I got married to my wife. So my wife knew the victim at elementary school, junior high school and high school. She reacquainted herself and married the optimist, the philanthropist, the trader, the negotiator, the self loader, the hustler, the hustler. And then she was the catalyst to, and, and would, while she married me, tell me I was lost. You know, and I would say, what are you talking about? I, I make more money in a day than you and my mom combined in, in your life. Like literally, I'd say stupid shit like that, right? Like she get mad at me. I'm like, look around you. You know, talk talk to the Ferrari if you if you have a problem. You don't want the nanny living here? I was an idiot. But things I everything was for me. I was Midas. I bought into the BS that everyone told me. And then my wife threatened to leave me because I was in this world. And that was the catalyst because no matter what, I get choked up thinking about it. I know how lucky I am to spend my entire life with my wife. I know it's probably not cool or other people might think something. I literally adore my wife. I, I don't know how many lifetimes or whatever I did in past lives to live my life with her. So when she threatened, like Tony Robbins talk, leverage, when she threatened to leave me, when she was one of the few people that stood up to me, and stop telling me, yes, there's a great book. Don't take yes for an answer. She said, I'm not happy. I'm leaving. You better take stock in who you are and what you want to become or you're going to die, let alone not be with me. I literally came to these values that I talk about, started learning the daily practices, started opening up my mind. People joke around. I meditate every day for 20 minutes. If you ask me, which someone did on a plane who taught me how to meditate, saying, hey, would you like to learn to meditate? You know what I said? meditate. I don't have time to meditate. I make everything happen myself. I was born with nothing. I have a Ferrari and a Porsche. I have 33 homes, a golf course, and a ski mountain. Why would I meditate? Only people that are sick, broke, you know, living on their mom's couch meditate. Now, I'm one of the biggest proponents there ever will be for meditation. I live in a world now, this is the third life. I live in a world of more than enough more than enough of everything for everyone. Nothing happens to me, nothing happens for me. Everything happens through me for others. I receive 
so I can give. And I'm worthy of everything I receive. And I'm going to receive so much more so that I can give so much more. And when you have this ability to say, I'm happy where I am, the right place at the perfect time, I will give you everything I have to angle to what I want. But even better, I have faith that I'm going to end up somewhere better than that. Because there is a world of more than enough. Somewhere between limitlessness and infinity is where I exist. The headspace of that is super intriguing to me because not many people get to have it all to start, right? They always chase, 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 chase to sort of see what they think they can get to and they never get there. So they think that's what they want. You got there, looked around and we're like, wait a second, this ain't that dope. Might lose my wife. That's more important. You know, I've been- um, How about this? Two years, after, two years after I went through that transformation, right? The quantum shift in my life. I lost everything over $100 million. So it was a very odd thing. I, I bottomed out two years before I lost everything. I was well prepared to lose everything it, emotionally, right? Mindset, heart set, and my activities. I, I had made you know a million dollars nine months out of law school. I was never worried about the money when I lost everything. I was actually had this sick sense of this is what I need. I got excited about starting over and improving the new way of abundance worked far better than lying, cheating, manipulating, overselling, back end selling. And the irony is I hated my father. Talk about looking within. The one lesson that I learned, you talked here in the 40s, was I hated my father because I hated myself. He wasn't a liar, a cheater, manipulator. He had learned his lessons and tried to teach me and help me. I was the liar, the manipulator, the cheater, the overseller and back end seller. And until I was honest with myself that I hated myself, nothing was going to change. Had you, you know, the, honestly, I, don't, I think there's probably one percent of the one percent that have had their come to Jesus moment, um, but understood the actual full game of it. I, I think it, I mean, you know, when you think about youth, when you, you know, when you, when you're super young, under twenty, you know, when you're a, when you're a kid, you know, when that stuff comes you kind of want to cry and then when you get into your 20s and it comes you kind of want to fight them and then when it gets to your 30s you sort of sit there and after you've you know transitioned from a i guess a prove yourself to others mentality to you know being able to provide value for the platform which you now have then it shifts to you almost have sympathy and empathy for for them of like where your energy sort of goes to so i wanted to maybe just jump on that for a sec so you lose 100 mil doesn't happen to too many people was the main cause of it because you drunk your own kool-aid that everything you touch would just be gold or was it a bad circle or what was the dynamic of energy that was around you that, cause it doesn't just happen just like that. It's a small little, like I've got a, a, um, a read an article about Tony Jay about his close inner circle in the last year, he basically started sort of pushing, didn't say yes to that coffee, didn't do this and kind of eventually pushed that circle of trust away from him. What was your circle of energy like when you went through that process of, of losing it all? What were the, key key pieces that that you know now that you you stuffed up with well number one was the lesson of radical humility i never asked for help so a little bit was the midas uh motivation that i believe my own bullshit. i believed what other people were telling me because they were getting things from me there was a great chain of feeding that i learned you know you need to feed those that feed you separate or let fall away those that don't and then fire those that bleed you I had ended up evolving where I'd surrounded myself with a bunch of yes people, a bunch of bleeders, a bunch of people, the wrong people with the wrong ideas, 
I was going to strip clubs and drinking and drugs and wasting my time. My wife actually, in the night that she changed my life, I came home from the Grammy Awards. I was running the most notable sports agency in the world in my 30s, you can imagine, right? Warren Moon's office is next to me. We're in the Jerry Maguire offices. Show me the money. And I'm going to the Grammy Awards with Little John, the rapper. And my wife says, don't go. You're not paying attention to work. You're not paying attention to the family. You're partying too much. Don't go. I lied to her. I changed my clothes in the car. I come home wasted at 5.30 in the morning. And that's when my wife told me she was leaving me, told me to take stock in who I was. Now, I almost got divorced. I woke up the next day only to be saved by God, meaning that I looked in my closet and there was a jacket that my father had given me for my 30th birthday with no pockets, who I told him to F off because he was a liar, a cheater. He had given it to me to teach me a lesson that you could not take anything with you when you died and told me I'd be buried in that jacket and to look at it every day to remind me money can't buy happiness and love. And he was worried about me that I was just like him. And I told him, F off. I'm nothing like you. You're a liar, a cheater, manipulator, overseller, backend seller. I hate you. And meanwhile, I'm about to call a lawyer to get divorced and take my wife's money and happiness. And that jacket, just like the movie, The Natural, with the light coming down on Wonder Boy, the bat, the light in my closet came down. And I swear to God, I looked over and I just started crying. I still get choked up because that's when it hit me that I was the liar, that I hated myself. Mm -hmm. And I was going to do everything I could to save my marriage. And I didn't give a shit about anything else because that was the person that saw through everybody. She knew and knew me since I was in the fourth grade. She knew me. She knew my inside better than I did. And so I was going to use her as my Sherpa to find the mountains and the valleys inside of myself in order to get through all of this. And here, here's the cool thing. You know, she exposed me to Wayne Dyer and Greg Braden and The Secret and all of these other things. And I have far beyond, you know, it's like the grasshopper overcoming the master. Cause now, you know, I'm writing books about it. I'm on the transformational leadership council with Canfield and Proctor and Deepak. And, you know, people come to me for these enlightened things. And all I think to myself is the universe, it laughs itself. If someone like me, who 15 years ago was screaming about how I was in control of everything, how I could make anything happen, how I, 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 and now it all comes through me in great humility, that to me is a blessing. The energy of having, so you know, you're in your 30s, you're making it rain, you're killing it, the strippies, you're just doing your, doing your thing. With so much perfection externally, and then yet so empty internally. How many people do you know have the alignment of external success and internal success out of all the millionaires and billionaires that you know? What percentage have that alignment right? About 20%. About 20%. Huh. Yeah, That's because, higher than I thought. Yeah, right. it, it is. It is. And I, and I will tell you, there's a spirit of excellence uh, at every level that it takes to, to get there. Um, and... 80% are, are still learning what it's like they're there. I would say the 20% that I talk about have learned the lessons through some sort of drug overdose, rehab, uh, bankruptcy. You, you remember in, in America, at least, uh, the average millionaire alone goes bankrupt twice. Uh, so you, you have to understand the lessons that are there. So it's a little bit higher than, than you would think because... 
20% of the 100% have already gone through the process of learning the lessons. And once you know how to make that kind of money or, you know, like look, look at Iron Man, um, you, you know, just he had all those problems, but doesn't mean he's, he forgot how to act. Right. He's still one of the world's greatest actors and he still has the relationship capital. That's what I felt like when I lost everything. I, I wasn't at rock bottom because emotionally I was on my journey of happiness. But more importantly, I already knew how to make money. I made nine, yeah. nine months out of law school. I made a million bucks. I didn't know anybody had one hundred thousand dollar law loans, never had a real job, came right out of law school. It wasn't scary, like how to make my, I made my first million in two weeks out of bankruptcy. That wasn't the issue. The 20% of people know how the spirit of excellence works that continues through them and learn from the mistakes of being empty and shallow and ego-based. The 20%, what layer percentage of those have some attachment to either faith or a higher energy or a deeper knowing of oneself? 99 99.9. No shit. Got it. And then out of the 80, what percentage? In varying degrees, they have some faith in varying mm -hmm. degrees. So, you know, even take, you know, someone like, uh, I, I hate to get political, but take Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump. Oh, we're going there. All right. Yeah. Go for it. I'm sorry. Open the door. <laughs> yeah. But I had to say it because that guy can manifest anything. Like there's a certain percent of faith that exists within you know, a sociopath or a narcissist that that makes billions of dollars and is the most powerful leader in the world. Those are all facts. And, you know, to some percent, he has a variance of what I see in the 20 percent. Uh, although I think he does live a very shallow, empty, lonely, sad, angry existence. I, I, I believe and I've met him previous to him being president you know, that he has a lot of the same issues that I had learned and a lot of the people that are in the powerful positions have, and he's going to have a lesson. Mark my words, you know, as this transitions over, the, if he stays alive, he, he's going to have some lessons about humility uh, himself. Uh, that'll be very good for him. Do you think that one of the biggest drivers for you at this point is actually um, the fear of future regret, that if you don't do it now, um, if you, if you don't do it now, you'll wake up at 80 going, shit, I knew I should have, could have, would have, but you didn't. Does that fear of regret drive you as well at all? Not, not that it's defensive at all, Mo but you know moments, I mean? moments and minutes in fear. So all of those fears that I listed out, including regret, um, absolutely. But the key to my life is that I've taken a mathematical approach to the waste of time, energy, emotion, money, and relationships. And what I have found is the only thing that causes me to waste that are these ego-based emotions like regret and guilt and resentment and offense. You know, take offense, for example. I've wasted so much of my life with the need to be offended. I wish I could feed the world as quickly as the need to be offended feeds itself. You know, I, I, I still have a problem with it. The only difference is I've made a practice to say, look, I'm not spending a day, a week, a month, a year, or, or multiple years in ego. I'm going to spend minutes and moments every day in ego, but I'm getting better and better to get back to where I want to be, to that center, to the neutrality, to the higher frequency that I carry, my higher self that allows me to be more aware and to do more good deeds. Do, do you think your, what does your wife think of you now for guy number three? Oh, she's more, more in love with me. So I get, I get choked up. Right, cool. 
I get it. Almost lost it. Yeah, but she, you know, what? one of the key lessons is I think the coolest thing about uh, Dave Meltzer number three is that I, I used to get mad at the things I adore, right? Like it, it, in a mindset, like some things were so mm. annoying about her that now I like it, it raises and elevates me. You know, it's it's who she is. You know, if you ever saw Goodwill Hunting, the scene that makes me cry is when he's talking about his wife dying Why? and the intimacy. Yep. And he talks about, you know, the, the good moments was when she farted in her sleep, right? That is my life. Like I have learned to find the light, the love and the lessons for the good stuff that I totally put an illusion in projection that it was an annoyance or whatever. Her her superpowers are ones that I don't have. And I shouldn't mm. find that as being a separating factor, but instead a uniting force that allows me to appreciate her more, to bring more value to her as she has brought more value to me. And that mindset has helped me in my marriage. And that's the mindset that Dave Meltzer number three is working on and perfecting the best that he can. So. DM1 was um, poor me, poor me, I'm a victim. DM2 is like stuff you, I'm the man around the world. DM3 is the come to Jesus moment. Now I'm grateful and realize that what was seen as liabilities are actually assets, which which pull it together. It's interesting. Like I, you know, I'm 35 now. I've I've gone through it to obviously way smaller scales than than that. But it's um it's cool to see the same mindset shift as as age does. So, you know, I um, you know, troll the world did a whole bunch of sort of stuff but i was um i never had girlfriends or anything until i met wifey i was actually a virgin until i met my met, met my wife and traveled i was professional snowboard everything and we've been together 11 years um married married for nine now what you've married for sort of 23 when you look at what's kept your relationship tight when you think about it um that most couples don't where do you think they where do you think it falls apart the most that you've seen in all your, cause I'm imagining Hollywood and all the rest of it. I'm sure that the hit rate for success is probably not that high. Um, <laughs> so what have you seen time and time again in, in the, in the relationship realm? Yeah. The, the four values that I teach one gratitude, they're, they're lacking the ability to find the light, the love and the lessons in each other, right? They're looking for reasons to be right or offended or separate or inferior or superior or angry or frustrated or guilty or resentful. There's plenty of opportunity to that in marriage. Then forgiveness is key. There's no forgiveness, right? They can't forgive themselves. And, you know, how many times in a marriage do we get pissed off at our spouse for doing something that we do or have done? So many times. Then the other one's just accountability, you know, people I see living in relationships, they, and, and this is the, the mother daughter problem I see as well. Blame, shame, and justification. Things aren't going right in my life. It must be my mom's fault because she brought me into this world and cares so much about me. She should have protected me. This happens in the couple relationship too. A lot of accountability issues. And then finally, the most important thing, uh, which is where I think one of my superpowers lies effective communication. You know, not only communicating with the person who you love, but communicating through yourself from that great source of truth, potential light, love, and lessons through you to that person effectively. And I'm much better communicator of not only my mindset, but my heart set. And I show it by what I think, say, do, and believe, and even some of the unconscious competencies of my personality traits, my characteristics, my obsessions and addictions have been activated and changed accordingly and that aggregate allows me to establish a very strong bond 
in which it to me is probably the most valuable of all relationships that a human being can go through that intimate one uh, uh, with a partner. Mm. Uh, what are you addicted to now? Where's your energy go to what you just can't get enough of time? Yeah, I, I've decided that I, I'm a freak of time. I'm always looking for four minutes to save every day. It turns into 24 hours a year. I literally study my calendar. I have non-negotiables with time. I am astu- probably, you know, next to Einstein, you know, in where he prioritized time and what is relative to everything he studied. Time to me is intertwined into every single thing. And I think the impact of that man-made construct of time and understanding how we can bend it, use it, manipulate it, lends it with productivity, accessibility, and gratitude, activity we're paid for, activity we're not paid for, planned, unplanned, and sleep. All of it is what I am obsessed with. How do you hack your time? Like you, you're a you're a busy man. You're an exec. Everyone else, I've I've seen it. Go for it. How do you hack your time? Two two routines. You got to have two routines. A set routine. Your tomorrow has to start today. One of the key components of hacking time is know that your tomorrow starts today. I have an unwinding routine. You're an athlete. You're gonna warm up before you're gonna go ski or snowboard for eight hours. Warming up for your sleep is unwinding. So many people don't get the warm up to sleep. They are getting in their own way. They're ruining the time when it's easy to get your ego out of the way, to be connected subconsciously and unconsciously to the truth, to allow yourself to plateau and grow. The second thing is the adaptable routine. So you're going to have your set routine. An adaptable routine is based off of knowing your non-negotiables. So for me, my life changed when I said, "No, look, come up with a well-developed plan. God's going to laugh. He's going to screw up your calendar with an in-law or a COVID or something else is going to screw up my plans. So now I know, number one, every day, no matter what's happening with the pandemic, I spend a minimum of an hour a day on my health. I spend a minimum of 30 minutes a day with my wife a minimum of 30 minutes a day with my 10-year-old son, a minimum of two minutes a day with my daughters. I asked for five. They gave me two. They're teenagers, 21, 19, and 16. And a minimum, here's the best piece of advice of the whole interview as we get to the end. I give a minimum of a minute a day to my mom, who you know is so dear to me, to tell her four things. And these are the crucial four things that you need to share with the people that you love. One, that I'm happy. Nothing makes your mom, dad, someone who loves you happier than to tell them that you're happy. Two, that I'm healthy makes them feel safe. They're in, responsible for you. No matter how old you got, you get, especially your mom, if, if she feels responsible. Three, that you love them. Express it. Let people know your heart set. And then finally, that you appreciate them, which means that they add value to your life. They want to know that they add value to your life. If you can tell someone in a minute a day, a minimum of a minute, those four things, your relationships will grow, expand, and compound in their interest. Your relationships will bring so much passion, purpose, and even profitability to you. So those are my non-negotiables. Then the last one is key. I have a minimum of 10 minutes a day to study. Uh, to make sure that I study. And for me, I use the calendar because I'm a time freak. Uh, But I study, which is the mathematical equation of luck. What I pay attention to, what I give intention to equals the coincidences in my life. So I study my time, what I plan, what I don't have planned in my sleep to make sure that I am productive, accessible, and gracious with that time to expand and grow, compound in what I'm doing. Remember, two minutes a day is worth more than two hours on a Saturday. I believe you zero out a lot of the conscious continuum by not doing things consistently. And so for me, those are the hacks of time that I best use in order to effectuate productivity, accessibility, and gratitude. 
how do you color code your different energies of personal admin, money income generation, general admin, email? Do you color code? How do you how do you do it? Folders. So I, I don't use colors. I, I am very swift. So I have and I'm practicing again. I'm categorizing what types of that, for example, emails come in. They get into a folder before I respond. And then I'm in a certain mindset to respond to interview requests or yep. to help uh, to help asks or to family, whatever the folders are, I put them in that way. Same thing is I also email and text myself so that everything ends up yep. into one repository. So I use different devices so that it gets into those folders, even if it started yep. somewhere Looks else. What are your what are your folders that you're currently dealing with? Family, so, business, op speaking. You've you probably got your I same five. I have P- PR requests, which are different. There's I, I get hundreds of PR requests. Then I have straight interview requests, people requesting like you did for for an interview. Then I have help requests. Then I have coaching coaching requests. Then I have business advisory requests. And then I have family. And then I have a separate one that's called travel. And and travel is all the logistics of the day that come about that you forget about and that goes into the travel folder. I was just going to ask, you've got 90% of your folders are people wanting stuff from you. Where's the folders with how people can help you? Great. So I'm glad you asked because that's the biggest transition (laughs) in my life is that I learned to ask. But here's how I ask. This is so cool that you mentioned this. So I believe everybody's a sponsor or a power sponsor of mine. I used to believe they were a gatekeeper. I used to believe I had to oversell you, back end sell you, lie, manipulate, or cheat you in order to get around you. Now I look at you and say, oh, there's a sponsor of mine or a power sponsor. So all I need to do is in person, on the phone, via email, and traditional media, and social media, ask one question and it's tied i check my scent box to make sure i'm consistent with it do you know anyone that can help me that's the question so i don't have a folder because every single one of those responses better have an ask of how i can receive Mm. yeah a a classic is when those that are so driven to help others they don't uh, stop for their for themselves as well and realize that it needs to be a two-way street or else you'll just do round two of what it was when everyone was just was it the feeders and the bleeders and all that shit as well which um not that i'm trying to give you any sort of mental advice i just felt like 90 percent of your folders were all hey give me 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 and then at a certain point you're like double fuck i need to sort my shit out um before we go um what would you, your dad think? Is he still, your, your dad's still alive now? Passed away uh, uh, the day after Father's Day three years ago. He was 80 yeah, right. years old. Yeah. Had he, if it was three years ago, he probably hasn't seen DM3 yet. Not not really. He saw glimpses of it, um, you know, obviously through the 15 years ago uh, in the low time. And luckily, that we became very close, especially in the last 15 years before I, uh, he passed away uh, because I learned not to try to change him, but to understand him and pray for his happiness. Um, here, here's something that's interesting. My wife believes in mediums. And so once a year she goes to a medium, but her father passed away last year. And so she went to her medium because he didn't believe in past lives. She does to talk to her father. And she told him when he was alive, she was going to do this. Well, my father came through when she was talking to her father and he gave her all this advice that was very private and personal. And there's no way, like, I believe in this stuff. Well, anyway, 
she told me, I wasn't there. She told me that my father came through. I'll choke up telling you this to tell her that he's proud of me. Now I'm 52 years old. I speak around the world. I have my own shows. I can't uh, speak about that because it meant so much to me because my dad never told me he was proud of me. And whether it's true or not, whether it's whatever, that to me is still something that I'm learning about myself of why that approval is so important to me, right? Mm -hmm. I know it drove me as a younger person. You know, I want to be better than my dad. I want to help my mom, all the things my dad couldn't do. But why is it that I'm 52 years old and my father, two years after he dies, comes through to a medium that's my wife is talking to her father. And she just mentions to me that my father said, you know, he's proud of me. And I can't say it without joking up. That's something that I'm working through. That's the Dave Meltzer three that takes that and says, this is something special here. I got to learn about myself. Why is that so important? Um, you, you wouldn't know this, but my, my, my dad passed away when I was 15. And when I was 11, he had a double brain hemorrhage and went back to the brain capacity of a six-year-old. So I was man of the house at 11. Um, and sport was my escape. And when he'd finally got good, we were in a, a car crash and I watched him pass away in front of me. And I've always wondered since that spot for the last 20 years of is the reason I keep push, 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 pushing because I know he's not there to ever say, I'm proud of you. And I've actually thought about that genuinely. Like, is the reason I don't have an off switch? Is the reason I'm so on offense? Because I can be homeless and my mom's still going to love me. I can do whatever. My, your mom's still going to love you. But literally having your dad be I like, I love my mom's house in the bankruptcy. She still loved me. <laughs> <laughs> but when you have that from me, I then wondered, well, if I hit 20 and I had my first win, if my dad then said, oh, I'm, I'm proud of you, would I have stopped? Don't know. Um, look, man, I. Uh, and the answer to all of it is yes. I would have. I've always been like this the entire way, and I think you clearly are too. Um, I know time is your asset, and we need to go. But I really, really appreciate it. And I know we haven't met before, but um, your energy is good. The strategy feels right. The math does make sense. And um, if our paths cross, they'll be amazing down the line, my friend. And hopefully, um, we'll see each other before we're 111 years old. I'll come to Fiji and come visit you in one of my favorite places as soon as this COVID ends. Love your work. Hey, appreciate your time. Thanks so much, brother. Thank you. Great interview. Take care. Peace. The bro, David Meltzer, right there. Uh, joining us, Dash Radio, Dash Talk X. Super solid. Great banter. Deceptively deep. And pretty flipping cool. All right, team. I'll see you.